You're listening to the Alliant M&A Roundtable, providing insights and expertise on the unique risk management needs associated with private equity firms. Here is your host, Jonathan Gilbert. Hi, th- thanks and welcome. Appreciate everyone joining for this uh, first edition of, of Alliant and Paul Hastings M&A Roundtable. We hope we find it to be a lively discussion on current trends in the rep warranty insurance market and what we're seeing in terms of deal activity overall, as well as the impact due to COVID, which certainly has caused some changes in policy terms, underwriting and otherwise, which we'll be sure to touch upon throughout the discussion. Thanks, John. And now let's introduce your roundtable participants for today. This is Sumit Agarwal. I'm part of Alliance Mergers and Acquisitions Group. I'm in based in Chicago, Illinois. This is Jacob Borth from Alliance Merger and Acquisition Group. Um, I specialize in reps and warranties insurance out of Chicago, Illinois. Um, so this is Amit Mehta. I'm a partner in the private equity and M&A group of Paul Hastings and global chair of the firm's corporate practice. This is Brian Richards. I'm a partner at Paul Hastings in Chicago as well, and am the chair of the global private equity practice. Thanks for kicking it off. So without further ado, if everyone could speak to what we're seeing with current year-to-date trends, um, if any trends have carried over from 2019, fully recognizing that uh, the world in 2020 is a little bit a little bit different than 2019. But just in terms of M&A deal flow uh, and even a little bit more specifically to uh, reps and warranties insurance, and really what, what trends is, uh, does everyone uh, anticipate on seeing through the uh, through the end of, uh, of 2020. Sure, this is Brian Richards from Paul Hastings. I'll take the first stab at that. Uh, and I think instead of viewing the world in a 2019 versus a 2020 construct, I think the maybe better way to look at it is pre-COVID and post-COVID because the 2020, the early part of 2020, was just a continuation of 2019 and 2018 and a market that was, as everybody knows, robust for five to seven years, and then all of a sudden stopped. It didn't slow down. It didn't fade. It just stopped. Like most folks, I expect we had a number of deals that were either days from signing and are closing, and they stopped, whereas other deals that had closed a week earlier, you know, it went off without a hitch. And I think the biggest trend that we have seen is as it relates to COVID and the exclusions and the evolution from just blanket uh, attempts by underwriters to initially exclude COVID-related issues from the definition of loss to a more um, specific exclusion to lately in a couple of policies that we've worked on uh, having very specific exclusions for COVID so that it doesn't, uh, the exception doesn't swallow the rule. And, and we think that that trend will continue as people continue to further the understanding of the impacts on the underlying businesses that COVID has had. And I think from a policy perspective, you know, from a, from a buyer's perspective, which is where we usually are in the transaction when we're dealing with policy, you know, return to normal and uh, minimalizing those exclusions is where, where we see things going and where, where they hope they continue to go. So I think that's right. We're, we're certainly seeing the uh, the same, Brian. So so thanks for that. I, I would bring up, you know, part of the of the irony in, in the marketplace for for rep and warranty is that there there obviously has, has been somewhat of a slowdown in uh, in deals. 
And, and as a function of that, carriers are seeing less submission flow, which in turn has, has almost created a, uh, a soft market or, or a more of an appetite to, uh, to write deals, obviously exclusive of that COVID exclusion that, uh, that you referenced. So um, with fewer deals out there, it's, it's a little bit interesting to see that um, carriers are stepping up and, and getting maybe a little bit more aggressive than we would have anticipated at this point in, uh, in 2022 uh, to write deals. You know, I would say that uh, certainly through um, Q1 and into Q2, we probably were seeing more submissions than uh, than ever, and, and that speaks to the broader M&A uh, M&A marketplace. Um, obviously, a little bit of a, a little bit of a slowdown into uh, into into Q2, but but expect that things will uh, expect that things will, will pick up here and have been picking up here certainly in uh, in June in July across a, a number of industry classes as well. Yeah, and, and it's a mean, I mean, I think I would echo both of what you guys are saying is that, you know, we're certainly seeing kind of across our platform um, in various sectors an increase in volume of, of, of new transactions coming in or transactions that had frankly just been delayed um, and put on hold or pause starting to actually move forward now as people start to get their head a little bit around the effects of COVID and what it's really meant, um, you know, for the market, for the EBITDA of companies, uh, for the financing industry and, and what they're willing to lend against and, and, and rates related there too. I think that's going to be for us, when we think about it from at least a global perspective and a market perspective, really going to be the question is if we can keep things moving forward, um, is the market going to continue to, to kind of reopen, if you will, uh, especially on the private equity side, kind of allowing for financing to come into place, people getting comfortable understanding kind of what companies they're financing into and what those look like in the near and short term. And, and I guess the last piece that we're starting to see, you know, especially in the last week or two, as states start to close back down or at least at least you know move a little bit backwards um, from where they were otherwise think they were going to be, you know, what what's the market reaction going to be to that kind of across the board? I think that's really at least from I think our perspective or my perspective, one of the big question marks as we kind of look at the third and fourth quarter for the year. Not to put anybody on the on the spot, but um, what would you say is the percentage um, of of financial buyers versus non-financial buyers on the on deals that uh, that you guys are um, that you're working on? Obviously, and I'm and I'm glad you brought up private equity. I think we can all appreciate private equity's role um, in in obviously M and A and in this particular product, but if, if you had to guess, what uh, what would you say is the is the breakdown of financial sponsors versus non-financial sponsors on, on deals that you're working on? This is Brian. For Amit and I, we're, we specialize in private equity, and that's the vast majority of the transactions we do. So we're, we may not have a sense for the broader market there. So I would say 80% 80, 80 of what we do is for sponsors. Uh, across the table, I would say probably at least 70 percent or so. I don't mean if your experience is different, but um, when we're selling on behalf of sponsors, we usually see sponsors across the table as well. Well, the activity and the volume has been down. I think that the, the private equity level is continuing to kind of to move along just in, a, in and I think we'll talk about this in a bit about what that pace looks like and how they're looking at it. I think certainly you've started to see some bigger deals uh, in the in the what I'll call the strategic space. Uh, getting announced, I think, you know, I think what last week or in the last couple of days, the, the largest M&A deal has been announced. It looks like it's going to be a stock for stock deal. Um, but you're starting to, to kind of see them play in this market as well. But they're also, you know, a lot of the big strategics are dealing with earnings calls coming up, you know, here in the next couple in the next week or so, which I think will be interesting to decide what they're otherwise looking at and, you know, what they're otherwise going to do with the market. 
and you, you've seen certain industries, obviously, the, the, air, the airline industry, travel industry, just being, you know, at this point, a total mess. Um, and I don't think they can really see at the, out, the other side of what this market's going to look like. So if we see activity in that front, I think it's probably going to be on the distress side um, and, and opportunities that people are going to find uh, either companies going away or using them as bolt-on acquisitions to their kind of current businesses, assuming they're otherwise healthy enough. Yeah, and I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up, and thanks for bringing up uh, for using the word uh, distress. We'll we'll certainly touch on that a, a little bit a little bit later. Um, is we're seeing a little bit of a little bit of activity on the, on those on those assets as well. Just from a timing perspective, and, and kind of a, from start to finish and getting deals completed, how would you compare uh, 2020 to 2019? Really, from your clients dipping their toes, toes in the water from the exploratory phase through the bid process and again through signing and closing. Have you seen most of your clients really itching to get deals done uh, both on the buy and the sell side or are clients taking a slower approach in, uh, in getting deals uh, completed? I guess, you know, from, from our perspective, it's been a little bit of a mixed, uh, a mixed bag. And I think we can all appreciate the fact that uh, everybody has a target sign date, which is a which is a working date until it's not the sign date. Um, we've seen sign dates get uh, consistently get uh, get pushed back. Uh, and then on the flip side, we've had you know a handful of deals that from start to finish and, and getting a policy in place have have gone otherwise relatively quickly. So interested in everyone's thoughts there as well. Sure, I can. It's amazing. I can jump in on that. I think. You're right. It has been a mixed bag, but it also has been evolving. So I think when we when we were looking at maybe the March time frame, I you know I think we at least on the private equity side we had seen a pretty pretty strong freeze on all transactions, um, either or new ones they were starting to look at or, or ones that were a little bit farther along, and we had most of our clients had looked internally looking at their own portfolio companies and trying to understand how those were going to weather the storm, those that were going to and those that would not. Um, part of that also was seeing what government assistance would otherwise become available for those companies, which, as it turns out, in the end of the day, there really wasn't you know, much government assistance available for, for most private equity clients and most of the portfolio companies just because of the restrictions in the, in the PPP program. But when you roll that now forward to kind of where we are today, I think you're starting to see more activities from the investment banks um, moving companies forward, moving them forward in the sales process. So. When we talk to our clients, they're starting to see more books come across their desk, more opportunities that are out there, both kind of healthy and distressed. Um, obviously, with, with certain caveats to when we say what healthy looks like right now. Um, so they're starting to see more and recognizing that you know, our clients are they're paid to do deals. Um, and so sitting on the sidelines for too long, it doesn't make economic sense for them. Uh, funds have defined lifetimes um, and, and investors are looking to put that, that money to work, which you can certainly read the amount of capital that's kind of sitting out there, both from a, from an equity and a lender side uh, out in the market. So we're starting to see, I think, more new activity come in. Um, and then when you think about transactions themselves, I, I would say, and I'll be curious, Brian's perspective as well as everyone else's, is that I would say it's more cautious and slow um, and slower than it than it's ever been because everybody just keeps waiting for that second shoe to drop if it already hasn't. And so we're proceeding. But it's more cautious. It's working with the lenders is a little slower, um, and what they're willing to to put money on and, and risk. And I think people think that these deals, if we're working on them, still will get done. But I would say we're if we were looking at deals, you know, moving to 30, 30 to sixty days time frame, 
um, in the past, I would say it's, it's at least double that on average of a time frame to sign and close and, and, you know, even up to 90 or 120. But that's what I'm otherwise seeing in the market. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think that, as Amit said, everybody's cautious and, and the driver for that is the ability to predict demand and nobody can predict demand for their product. Absent certain industries that are benefiting from the current situation, for most businesses, it's hard to impossible to predict what demand's gonna be in 30, 60, 90 days, 180 days. And that applies to the lenders, of course, as well. And so everybody's just cautious. People are getting the work done that they can get done so that they're in a position once they're comfortable with what demand's gonna look like to close the deal but uh, ultimately cautious to pull that trigger is what we're seeing. Yeah, and I'd, I'd echo both your, uh, both your comments from, uh, from the Alliance side as well. Um, certainly on the, on the deal financing side, speaking with, with some of our, uh, our, our colleagues and, uh, and friends um, who are on the credit side, you know, credit uh, tends to generally be uh, available and readily available, but kind of what we're hearing is that for existing clients, you know, credit is is much more easily attainable than for a, a, for a new uh, for a new client, and then uh, that also goes without mentioning the uh, the regulatory approval process. A lot of times, that uh, that comes to fruition, obviously, in uh, in, in deals as well. We've we've seen a couple transactions uh, whereby that have that have been delayed due to regulatory bodies just simply not being able to, uh, to, to get up to speed with their work as they, as they normally do. So can fully, uh, fully appreciate that, but would largely echo that. And, and to, your, uh, to the initial point, um, I think that the deal speed is, uh, is certainly picking up through, uh, through the summer months and maybe a little bit closer to what we're, what we're used to seeing as well. And on that point, um, I'll kind of kick it off to the next question. And we've touched a lot about about this topic already as in terms of what to expect in the second half of the year and the summer months and where folks see Q3 and Q4 deal flow going. And just so we don't talk about the same topic again and again, with the deal activity that's expected in Q3 and Q4, do you see any potential changes in deal structures, either with the players involved, deal financing, use of escrow or seller indemnity? Um, I know some of the larger deals these days have uh, no seller indemnity and now we're seeing limited seller indemnity as specific indemnity as it relates to COVID and PPP loans. If uh, either Amit or Brian wants to tackle that topic. Sure, this is Brian. I will, I'll take a first crack at that. I think that we all, everybody on this call, and probably most people who will listen, will, uh, are all hopeful that the market will pick up, that there'll be a lot of activity again because our livelihoods all depend upon it. But I think realistically, uh, it's going to continue to be slow, again, until people can predict demand, until management teams can predict demand and buyers and lenders can trust those predictions of demand. Um, and I think if you talk to the investment bankers, uh, if you give them some truth serum, they'll tell you that the pitch activity and deals and process coming to market are low levels compared to where they were. Again, we're, we're all comparing this to a very robust 2018, 2019, early 2020. So, you know, the deals are just going to be slower, I think, again, except for businesses that are unaffected. And we've seen some companies that are in the market where they're positively, very positively impacted by COVID, whether it's because they produce PPP or otherwise you know, are, are producing products that are in demand. And those are equally different, difficult to value because we don't know how long that 
surge in revenue is going to last? Is that going to be six months or three years that they're going to have these kind of excess uh, revenues? But I think the, the one factor that I haven't seen much written about or talked about that is going to become very important in the next few months is the election. And you know, everybody talks about how in election years, a lot of times deals slow or pick up depending on what people's expectations are. Here, I think you've got, um, it's gonna be more interesting than most election years. And in part, that's because of what the polls look like right now, and just in part because of just the general uncertainty in the world and in the market today. But if the markets start to think, and if sellers start to think that the Democrats will sweep the White House, the Senate, and the Congress, then I think you're gonna see a flurry of deals, kind of back to the question on timing, you'll see a flurry of deals done very quickly because sellers will be looking at potential corporate tax rates going up, which is something that is part of the platform. You see capital gains rates for individuals going up. And you'll see possibly, finally, the carried interest being taxed at order income rates, which has been a topic we've all heard about for decades now. But um, there's a lot of momentum with some very influential Democrats, including Senator Warren, who've, who've made this an important part of their platform. And if owners of businesses, whether it's entrepreneurs, private equity firms, or others, see that corporate rates can go up, capital gains rates can go up, carried interest can be taxed or income. And, oh, by the way, the Senate Democrats have said they're in favor of blowing up the filibuster so they can get things done with just 50 senators. If I owned a business, I think... I would rather sell it prior to those things happening rather than after they've happened. And so you might see, like I said, a lot more activity and also um, maybe even sellers willing to take a little bit of a discount as they focus on the after-tax proceeds they're going to get as opposed to the top-line number. Yeah, completely hear you on that. And even as Jacob mentioned previously, from a regulatory standpoint, um, deals, I feel like, can happen a lot quicker given this administration's view on relaxing uh, regulation uh, and, I guess, deregulation, whereas, as you kind of alluded to, if the election kind of pans out the way people anticipated to or expected to, then there might be a ramp up in regulatory oversight, and then it might be a little bit harder to get some of those larger deals done. And I guess from a from a larger standpoint, as, as opposed to, like, deal structures and the like, it, it, it's tough to say with all these specific indemnities and, and the like, buyers kind of have to take what sellers provide and and, and there's just also, there's a, there's a ton of dry powder on the sideline. So with all these delays and people are kind of waiting, as you, as you mentioned earlier, for the second shoe to drop if it hasn't already, some of these private equity funds that have done fundraising and have to kind of distribute capital for, for 2020, if you have billions of dollars, if not trillions, that need to be uh, invested, um, it just kind of delays the five to seven year return that investors are expecting. And I think that's an impact that, again, as you mentioned, there's just some things that people aren't talking about putting a lot of importance on. Yeah, and I think that's a, I think it's a good point, Sumit. This is, uh, this is Jacob again. I think it's a good, a good point. And, and it kind of goes back again to, you know, use of, uh, use of, of capital that's available, right? And even, even you know, pre-coronavirus, I think that at least domestically here in the U.S., there was a record uh, level of, of, of availability of capital on, on corporate balance sheets. So, you know, to your point, I think at some point it's just simply going to have to get put to get put to use, 
and, and you know, I guess I, I think we would have expected maybe a little bit more activity on the, on the, on the strategic side, but um, as the Paul Hastings uh, guys mentioned earlier, I think that's uh, I think that's starting to uh, to come back a little bit, which is uh, which is good, and not just on the on the mega deals um, as well, and, and the deals that that make the headlines. You know, I, I think that we'll, we'll certainly continue to see more activity in the in, in deals that are that range from you know certainly fifty million dollars and uh, of enterprise value and up. To get into the nitty gritty of, of the deal itself, one question. Um, that, that certainly always comes up on uh, on every deal on the, on the insurance broker side. We'd like to get the Paul Hastings uh, team's perspective on due diligence um, and any trends or developments that um, you guys are seeing for 2020. You know, I, I know that we keep harping on uh, on coronavirus and its impact. Um, I think it's a little bit tough to get away from that conversation, but I think we'd be remiss not to talk about. Uh, due diligence and, uh, and and really where what are your clients focused on and where are you guys advising clients to focus on and how has that uh, potentially been uh, been impacted through uh, at this point in time? Yeah, this is I mean, so I think you know in, in a lot of ways I would say it will continue to be consistent with the, the items that we're kind of looking at that we've been looking at in, in the past. Uh, obviously, with adding COVID on top of it, so you know heightened risk of. Certainly, data privacy being an example, and, and, and kind of how the policy, how the how the insurers are looking at those from an exclusion basis or coverage basis or not, uh, is certainly top top of mind for us. Um, I think a lot of times on the COVID side, where you know initially it seems like it's continuing to shift more from the insureds, um, I guess, betterment than it was before. Is the, the policies are getting narrower, the language is getting narrower, and and how people are viewing those. Um, in terms of kind of what the exclusion to the policy or the loss would be. And I think from our perspective, like our client's perspective is also not just from the policy, but just understanding kind of what the business and legal risk is uh, for companies that have otherwise shut down. They have furloughed employees um, or, or they're terminated them. They've got labor agreements in place for, for you know, the, the concept of furloughing or termination doesn't necessarily coincide with how those are otherwise written. And so I think they're also looking at it from a perspective of, Okay, well, if, if we're going to have these issues, how do we deal with that risk? So, if the policy, if the seller's not going to stand behind it, uh, if the policies otherwise aren't going to stand behind it, or if the way they're going to stand behind it, it's really not going to benefit us from an economic perspective. It's taking that and kind of flipping it on its head a little bit and understanding, okay, then from a purchase price perspective or deal mechanics, how do we deal with that issue? Um, and so, that's where I think we started to see, and we talked about this a little bit, is when we continue to see these transactions move forward, I think the contingent nature of some of the consideration is where they may be driving a bit of value. Um, so if it's an earnout, if it's a seller note, um, if it's some rolled equity, you know, those kind of concepts, I think in the current market, that's I think where their bigger concern is uh, it, it, from an economic and value perspective than necessarily from, rep, from a rep and warranty side. I think they're going to continue to view the rep and warranty insurance and, this, and that for which the sellers have to stand behind it is really going to be their kind of historic look at that business for really the unknown. Yeah, agreed. And I think you touched on a couple of great points. Thanks for that. Um, you know, the the adequacy um, of IT and network systems is something that we're seeing insurance carriers really, really hammer down in, in 2020. And I, Alliant would argue that was that was probably going to be an area of heightened risk and heightened underwriting focus um, in 2020, irrespective of uh, COVID. 
but with, with employees working remotely and added stress on companies' IT, uh, IT systems, um, it's become all the, more, uh, all the more prevalent. You know, and the other, the other I think the other uh, great point that you, that you touched on is just with respect to uh, earnouts themselves. I, I feel like here, certainly in the last, in the last couple months, uh, the percentage of earnout has, has gotten a little bit higher and higher. Um, and that's not to say that, that buyers aren't open to or, or they don't want to, you know, provide for that, uh, that sweetener in a, in a transaction. But, um, you know, I, I feel like we're, we're just seeing more and more of, of an earnout um, as part of a, as part of a, a transaction, uh, transaction structure. You know, and, and further on the, on the due diligence point, um, and, and specific again to the rep more the underwriting. I feel like uh, customer and supplier contracts are certainly continuing to be areas of, uh, of heightened focus. Um, maybe a little bit irrespective of, uh, of coronavirus, the classification and misclassification of employees um, as, as independent contractors was certainly something that we were seeing a lot in, uh, in 2019 and into, uh, into 2020. Um, and those are those are kind of areas where, where again, insurance carriers are drilling down and, and underwriting calls, and we're seeing, you know, really our clients conduct significant diligence on on those fronts. Do, do you see? Are you guys seeing any uh, any shift in the, in the in the paradigm as as well? Um, how how deals are are getting done? I know we touched on the on the earnout structure, but. Um, what, what are you guys seeing from a from a distressed or underperforming? target standpoint, or, or even what are you guys seeing from a multiple standpoint? I fully recognize that's a little bit of a loaded question and, and probably somewhat uh, depends on, on industry uh, and obviously is, uh, is deal specific, but just generally speaking, distress versus, uh, versus performing assets and, and, and where are you guys seeing uh, a multiple yeah, maybe let me. Maybe I'll hit the first part of that question, and, and Brian, I'll let Brian hit kind of the second on the multiple side. Is that on the distress side? Uh, I think we certainly see a pickup um, in, in that world. I mean, not surprising. You, you saw it a bit new on the gas side, but I think now, obviously, it, it's starting to kind of move along um, into a lot of other industries. We're, we're seeing it, and you've seen a ton of lenders take the keys on restaurant-related uh, businesses, on travel-related businesses. Uh, you know, we and we're working with a couple of lenders now that are kind of going through that process where either they bought into the loan kind of late, late stage, um, you know, after the financing, because they otherwise looking at it as a successful acquisition opportunity for them. Um, otherwise, kind of being the fulcrum in the business. But I think we're seeing a pickup there. And I think we'll continue to see that pickup uh, on the what I call the distressed 363 side. And as part of that, I know we've got a couple of lenders um, or clients of ours who are sitting in the lender position or on the or on the kind of private equity, you know, stocking horse side uh, that are actually looking at rep and warranty is kind of a viable option for them now uh, when they're thinking about taking these assets over. Um, I think for them, it's 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 an opportunity. It, it, it's a it's a. Uh, available source of recovery that they didn't otherwise have in the past, um, but I think they're starting to look at that. And as we talk to to you all and the other brokers, that you know that's certainly a pickup of availability um, that otherwise we didn't really see as kind of a useful mechanism in the past. So I, I think we'll continue to see a lot of pickup on the stress side. I think people are going to continue to look at it from either financing. Companies never away from either growth equity side, maybe taking a piece of the loan over, either in either using that as the fulcrum to kind of foreclose on the asset, 
or just running as a stocking horse uh, otherwise in the market? Yeah, I think on the, on the, it makes a really good point there. I think that the way to simply state it is in, in most rep and warranty deals, you've got the insurer substituting for the seller. And that's been the reason in large part, I think that the market has evolved is uh, because sellers have gained leverage over the last several years with all the dry powder and the other things we've talked about. So another way for sellers to exercise that leverage in addition to squeezing on price and, and closing certainty was to uh, get out of post-closing indemnification obligations and rep and warranty insurance has done a great job of, of fulfilling that role. And the, the evolution here as it relates to the distressed is it's not the insurance here isn't replacing the seller as indemnitor. It's creating a new class of indemnitor. And what that really does is facilitate transactions that otherwise might not have been able to get done because the buyer now has some form of protection and the sellers had no ability to give that protection because there was no, they weren't getting anything for the deal. So why would they it really open up a new class of, of transactions that otherwise might not have gotten done or would have gotten done on different terms. Um, just generally, and as the question is to multiples and the like, I, I think, again, it's, it's very um, deal and industry specific and goes back to the question of ability to predict demand, which is why we're seeing these earnouts. Everybody hates earnouts, and yet we, we're seeing them, as we've all talked about, more and more than we had been in the last few years. And I think they're, they're serving a useful purpose because. We don't know if the business is worth six times or nine times, and so you can pay six times at close. And if things pan out as people hope, buyers are happy to pay the nine times. And if, and obviously, I'm making up these numbers. And if the uh, business or the economy or things beyond the business's control don't pan out, then six times probably was the right price. And you know, all this under the cover of what we've already talked about in terms of just being so much dry powder and capital sitting on the side. But, you know, it's, it, there's no, I, I think LPs are generally happy to have their funds not investing if they're not confident in uh, the deals they're doing. So while there's dry powder, I don't know that it's necessarily burning a hole in the pockets of the um, sponsors. And I don't think, unlike in other markets where we've seen over the years, I don't think the sponsors are getting a ton of pressure from the LPs to deploy that capital right now. I think they're um, comfortable, the LPs are comfortable with the cautious approach that the sponsors are taking. Thank you for that, Brian. And, and, and Brian, to, to your first point on the use of uh, reps and warranties in the, in the marketplace, and specifically for you guys on the, on the legal side of it, I guess the question is, do you see any changes on the horizon in how reps and warranties insurance is gonna be used just based on, on how, how it's functioned from start to finish, um, even post-close from a claims perspective. And, and from our perspective as a broker as to where we see the reps and warranties market going over the next 24 months, I mean, everyone anticipates a hardening at some point. And, and what that means is, is that there's a slight uptick in premiums. Um, there's some markets out there that are kind of pushing the market towards a little bit higher premiums. We're seeing higher retentions. But um, we'd be remiss to say that on the flip side, we, we don't also see a downward pressure on, on retentions on some of the larger transactions. Also recently, um, as of the last few months, we've seen, we've seen some sort of COVID exclusions. Initially, uh, when the market was reacting to it, there's very broad exclusions. Um, we've kind of worked over the last 60, 90 days to 
narrow and tailor that down to something that's a little bit more quote unquote directly related to COVID. Um, it's, such, it's so ambiguous and from the insurance perspective, we understand um, from a claim standpoint that if there's ever a claim on a policy with a COVID exclusion, that the insurer might just point to COVID and try to deny the claim. Um, but then from the carrier standpoint, we also understand that COVID or PPP um, might not be something that a reps policy is supposed to cover. And then just continued scrutiny, financial statements and, and the like, things that have given rise to claims in the past and currently. Uh, so I, I don't know if you have a take on where you kind of see the, the, the use of reps and warranties policy on a go forward basis over the next 12 to 24 months, just based on your experience on how it's functioned. Yeah, I, I think that they built, you know, we'll continue to see its uh, adoption in the marketplace. We, we, as the buyers of policies, love to see uh, the trend of decreasing premiums, decreasing retentions, uh, in some cases, no retentions on specific rep, fundamental reps. And so all the trends, I think, over the last few years have been good for us. And I think it's a, just like we were talking about on the due diligence, uh, I think the, the areas where there's heightened due diligence, it all circles back to where there have been claims. And as long as the insurers continue to have relatively low claims where they actually have to pay out, I think we'll continue to see premiums going down. I mean, as you guys know better than us, number of new entrants in the market, it seems every year, the market gets more competitive every year, which is um, a function, I think, of a market where there's people making outsized profits. So as long as it's a profitable business, there'll be more people coming in, it'll be more competitive. And at some point, we'll find that equilibrium where the policies are priced fairly, quote unquote, for the payments that are going out. And I think we're now getting to the place where there's a maturity in the marketplace where the insurers can take a look at a, a five, seven year horizon to see what they've taken in, what they've paid out, what it's been for. And that, you know, that drives where they push back on exclusions and it drives where then we all have to do more on the diligence. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And then I guess further to that point, um, what areas have you seen use reps and warranties and have fared better than others, all things considered? I mean, from our perspective, uh, lower middle market deals, that which is kind of under 50 million, have fared well better than others. Most of the deals that we've done that survive the, the initial drop off in deal flow were these lower middle market deals. Um, they kind of weathered the storm given their initial diligence and the deal size, they were able to still close the deal in March and April. Um, and these are deals where we may not have been able to find competitive rates just three to six months ago. Carriers, like you said, there's more and more carriers entering the market um, each passing year. And to some degree, they, they come in and kind of provide competitive rates, whether by premium or retention or underwriting capability. And, and, it's, and all these new entrant people who are entering the market are not just new underwriters, they're all coming, coming from experience in the market for five to 10 years and establishing their own shop. Uh, so in that sense, the name is new, but the people are people right from the industry that have kind of been there from day one and just starting up their own shop. We've certainly seen, you know, I, I, I would agree with this, the norm for, for almost all of our deals, um, especially in the lower middle market, the middle market, um, have been the use of rapid warranty policies. And I think there's been an increase uh, of use of using both just what I'll call a normal general policy 
uh, that may or may not have kind of an additional policy on top of that just to deal with increased coverage plus the fundamental policy on, on top of that as well. And I think, you know, on the competitive side where you know, we've gone into auctions, certainly pre-COVID, but I think we're starting to see that will come back or kind of know that it will come back is that, um, you know, we advise clients that if you really want to be, you know, thoughtful in this auction and if it's that hot, you know, we're otherwise going to need to look at it from a kind of a public company style um, purchase agreement where we're, we're binding both the general and fundamental policy and letting the sellers walk away, certainly if they're their sponsor on the other side. Um, otherwise in a competitive process. So I think we would agree with that, that in that marketplace, it, it's going to continue to be abundant unless there's something that's otherwise changed the dynamic where people just don't use the, view the policies is kind of worth the cost uh, of, of binding them. But I think we don't think that will otherwise change and, and continue to be something we guide our clients towards. I think, certainly think sellers are going to be pushing those and not going to really change that perspective um, from what we've seen kind of pre-market. And I think the, the expansion of you know, other carries in the market certainly helped. Um, it becomes, I think for us, in some ways, a little confusing to keep up. And I mean, that's kind of where we rely and work well with your team is that, you know, you're, you're trying to figure out, okay, well, we had a great policy negotiated with this group and now some, maybe some persons in that group have otherwise moved over to a new team. What does that mean from a policy perspective? Are we starting over? Do we have forms with that group? I mean, I think that's, where we get a little, you know, I wouldn't say concerned, but it can slow us down a bit if we're going to a new a new carrier that we don't otherwise feel like we have a good starting place. Um, but like anything else, I mean, I think the increase in the insurance, you know, brokers or the insurers that are out there is somewhat similar to what we've seen from the, the availability of financing sources out there. I mean, the, the amount of non-bank lenders um, that we're working with compared to one, two to three years ago has probably tripled. Um, and similar, we see that in the insurance space as well. And part of it's just making sure we understand who we're interacting with and making sure they're going to be reasonable. They're going to work as fast as, as we need them to, um, and otherwise get insurance in place that we're comfortable with. Yeah. I think just picking up yeah. on that, remember a couple of years ago, it seems maybe it was even less than that, but the, the timeline would allow for about a week from the diligence call, or at least providing final reports to the underwriter to the time we close. And that, like everything else in deals, has gotten compressed. And so while we talked before about how deals are slowing down and people are being more cautious, it, it's slow until it's not. And at the end of the transaction, once people have decided to transact and they've got the terms, there's not a lot of patience or tolerance for us and the underwriters, you know, the lawyers and the, the brokers and the underwriters to, to do the job of finalizing reports, having to do those in call, getting a policy, and then binding it in, in order to close. So instead of seven days, like we used to have, it's you know, now sometimes two or three days. And so it's super important for us to have confidence and be able to communicate to our clients confidence that we'll be able to get that done. It's one thing where it's an underwriter where we've got, like Amit said, a really good form and a working relationship where we can just change names and dates on the form, update for the deal, and then we're really just talking about closing out final diligence items and talking about exclusions. Whereas if it's someone with whom we don't have a good form, then we're really relying on, on you guys and on the brokers to make sure that this is a group that uh, we can get a good form quickly with and also, uh, you know, hopefully you all have one that we can work with and that they're 
the group, the underwriter, is going to be reasonable uh, when it comes to exclusions because at that point we're we're stuck. We're going with that underwriter whether they're reasonable or not. And um, and if they're not, you know, it's it's a disaster for us on this deal. It's the end of the relationship for for them on deals going forward. But they've got all the leverage in the short run. So that's where you guys add a ton of value in terms of uh, helping guide us to with respect to the, the new underwriters, whether they can be trusted in that case or not. Oh, yeah, we, we definitely hear you on that point. And, and with each market that kind of enters the space, at least us at Align, we kind of try to get ahead of it. We reach out to them. We talk to them. We actually try to get their form policy and mark it up before we even have a deal with them. Um, there are certain things that we look for in terms of value add and the policy that we'd like to negotiate on, on your behalf or on the insurer's behalf. And we try to get ahead of that, get it in the policy, and make sure the carrier is going to kind of be open to those changes, obviously deal to deal. And even on the exclusion front, um, again, yeah, you're right. If they, if they come with an exclusion at the 11th hour, um, one that didn't flag earlier, it's always an issue. But we've kind of seen with, with experienced people starting up the new shops, um, they, they kind of know and they're experienced, and it's not like they're new to the game, so they kind of know how it works. And there's usually a, a rationale behind it, obviously, uh, from your perspective, in terms of representing the buyer, you want to have make sure there's minimal or no exclusion. I mean, we've pushed back on those. Um, if it's something that kind of came up that can be resolved, you make it conditional or, or you kind of work with the, the carrier uh, to, to either limit it or make it very specific um, as opposed to overly broad. Yeah. yeah, and we get there are going to be, in certain cases, there are going to be exclusions. It's, that's fair. We're not looking to jam the underwriter. But then just making sure, one, they are fair, and two, that they're narrowly defined to address the specific concern, the legitimate concerns that the underwriters have while not, you know, being overbroad and, and picking up things that aren't really intended to be picked up. And, and for, for what it's worth, I think our experience has been very good with most underwriters over the last 12 to 18 months in that, for the most part, uh, the underwriters are, like you said, they're, they're commercial and, and a lot of them, whether they're at a new shop or an old shop, they've been around, the individuals have been around and understand how the product works. Yeah, and, I, and, and this is Jacob, guys. Um, you know, just to, to touch, you know, on the on the process itself, I, I, I know this was brought up um, a couple minutes ago, but, um, you know, on the process itself, I do think that the, the process itself has gotten better than ever uh, and is probably more swift than, uh, than ever, maybe with the exception of, um, you know, the current environment and, uh, and the underwriting call itself. Um, but I do think that the, that the process has been extremely streamlined, and I think uh, a value add of a, of, a, of a broker who's in tune with this product certainly recognizes that and is also in tune with, uh, with that process. Um, and then obviously, you know, from our standpoint, recommending a carrier underwriting, um, ease of underwriting, I should say, in conjunction with uh, claims experience and claims payouts. You know that that really goes a long way. Um, you know, it, for for each and every deal, there is an element of uh, of reputational risk for these underwriters that uh, that I think we that I think we touched on, and I, I think we can all appreciate. We're not in the we're not in the business of uh, of selling paper, um, and and nobody likes to go through the claims process. But it's but it is uh, it is the reason why. Um, the policy is uh, is purchased, and the reason why we we do have a, a marketplace in and of itself, um, which I which I do think it, it goes along a long way in a hardening market. 
Um, however, I, I wouldn't necessarily think that, and this goes back to the point of, uh, of value add, um, I, I, I don't think that the process itself would be a little bit more, more difficult, but, you know, insurance companies are certainly taking more losses even away and, and exclusive from the rep and warranty policy, um, carriers are certainly taking more uh, more losses, uh, insurers and reinsurers, um, certainly in, uh, in in catastrophic losses and property and casualty losses as well. Um, whether that will eventually have an impact on the rep and warranty market, I think is maybe somewhat anybody's uh, anybody's guess. Um, I think that that this product overall continues to be extremely profitable for those that are that are involved. Maybe somewhat exclusive of the of the bigger losses that uh, that we see, um, and again, you know, I, I think this was alluded to just a minute ago. But in from your guys' perspective, and in even um, you know recommending the value of the policy itself, until we hit a point in a in a harder market where carriers are excluding something like uh, fundamental reps, um, which is probably a pretty bad example, but where where they're just simply excluding fundamental reps or anything um, or any uh, any tax reps just as examples then i think you know we can all probably maybe start to to question the integrity of the, of the policy itself that's a longer way of saying that i think we're we're pretty far away from uh, from that standpoint um, and i think we're, we're all on the same page that we actually see the the product continuing to develop to develop uh, in a favorable position for our collective clients on the, on the claims front, uh, it's interested to, to hear if, uh, if anyone has seen any rep and warranty claims stemming out of, uh, of COVID-19 to date or, you know, whether, whether that claim has been denied or, or otherwise. Certainly, on the, on the business interruption front in, in other insurance policies, and this is maybe the hot-button topic in, uh, in the insurance industry right now um, as to where and how or, or probably better put if insurance carriers are going to be on the hook for paying out on business interruption claims uh, tied back to a to coronavirus would be interested in, in your guys perspective to see um, whether whether you guys have seen any claims on on that front or not yeah I, I mean not only have I not seen any claims on COVID-19 in all the deals we've done over the last several years we haven't had any real claims. We've had to notify insurers in a few cases of third-party claims that could potentially result in a, you know, a claim against the insurance, but we've never actually recovered from insurance, nor have we suffered a loss that I think would be recoverable under policy. So, not on wood, uh, not, not yet, and hopefully we can save the saving in a couple of years. Yeah, exactly. And and just generally speaking, as to claims trends, um, where are you guys? Uh, where are you guys seeing um, an uptick in uh, an uptick, or, or where's the most common area that you that you see claims? I think, you know, I think financial statements claims uh, for the last uh, for the last number of years has been the has been the the number one um, area where where claims are seen in uh, in these policies. I think probably closely followed by regulatory uh, and, and compliance matter claims. So um, we'll be interested in your two cents that, um, again, now that we've, we've beat the dead horse that is coronavirus, uh, what, where you guys uh, are seeing more and more claims. Yeah, I, I think for us, thankfully, we haven't had too many issues um, with having to bring otherwise claims. I think probably the, certainly on the tax side, 
um, I think we've brought at least initial claims in um, from really from audits and issues related there too. So we've kind of notified people up, um, but I think it's been, a, I think the, the income tax kind of derived from audits or, or similar issues from a historic basis are where we've otherwise notified people up. I think we've had, a, and then somewhat on the financial statements and then we've got a couple of claims I think we've otherwise gotten resolved um, before and they were probably under the retention amount anyways. Um, I think we're the two really areas that I think we've we've seen it the most, and you just kind of look at the, the surveys and studies. I think where I've kind of seen them kind of hitting the market the most. Yeah, we're we're seeing really the the exact same. I think that um, uh, you know we've seen a couple of claims here in the last uh, in the last few years um, with respect to condition of asset claims, which uh, which the, which the carriers have have seemingly stepped up and are and are paying out on. Um, but, but completely, uh, completely agree with you just here recently. Um, and obviously not, not without naming, uh, naming names. We, we have seen a, a couple claims on the, uh, on the fundamental rep side with respect to subsidiaries and another with respect to really, uh, ownership of, uh, of shares, um, which is a little bit interesting, because uh, frankly, um, again, the general reps seem to, uh, seem to get Seem to get hit with uh, get hit with claims much on a much higher frequency um, than uh, than the fundamental reps. So I'm uh, somewhat somewhat glad to hear you guys are are seeing the uh, are seeing the same trends. And guys, that's uh, that's really it for questions. Thanks so much for uh, for everyone's participation. Um, we obviously look forward to to working with you guys more in uh, in the marketplace. And, and again, really appreciate everyone's participation and uh, and look forward to a strong second half of 2020. Amen. Thank you. Great. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. And for more information, visit www.alliance.com.